Would you open God's precious holy word to the Revelation chapter 20? All the unsaved people are dead here. But there's one fella trying to hide. And he's going to be dealt with here. So we begin in verse 1. And I saw an angel descending out of heaven holding the key of the abyss. We've seen the abyss before, much earlier. This is where hordes of demons had been incarcerated or had been locked away so as not to access or to be allowed to have access to the human race until the time of the tribulation. So this is, a, this is a really strong prison. I don't know if it's the same as the word in the Greek that Peter uses in 2 Peter where he speaks of uh, uh, fallen angels who are consigned and it's translated hell, but the word is Tartarus. And it's a lower, stronger uh, part of Hades where unsaved people are consigned when they're dead. And there's a worse, lower place called Tartarus. Now, is the abyss the same? Well, I don't really know, but a different word is used here. Whatever the case, it is so strong that it can hold the dragon, Satan. And this angel descending had a great chain in his hand. And he seized the dragon. You have to wonder what kind of angel this, this was, especially when you realize the fact that uh, the dragon, Satan, in his unfallen state was a cherubim and he was a mighty creature and there are still four others like him. I don't know if it doesn't say it was a cherubim. I suppose it would have said if it was. But this is a particularly powerful angel whose job he's like the sheriff. His job is to incarcerate the last criminal there is. And to handcuff him, to chain him, and to throw him in prison. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent who is devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years. Okay, so there's no mistaking who he seized. There's no mistaking that this is Satan. He was, he's been known as a dragon. He was the ancient serpent who was there in the garden. He's the adversary, uh, the devil. Uh, he's a liar. He's everything that is wrong, evil, and bad. And he is the one who has led this, this time-long rebellion. And through his 
cohorts, his armies, and even those human agents whom he could oppress and influence, he has been the chieftain of sin and rebellion in God's universe. Remember, the beast and the false prophet have already been captured, arrested, and thrown into the lake of fire. In this case, Satan, the dragon, is not yet cast into the lake of fire. He is chained and he is imprisoned and he is cast into the abyss and there he will be for a thousand years. Now, let's think about this. We go to the next slide. He cast him into the abyss and shut and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. We'll stop there. Here, and there, there's more than one or two references here to this thousand year period. There are some who by their interpretation think of the thousand years as just sort of like, you know, a thousand, you know, and I've been here all day and you uh, all day. Was it 12 hours? What is it? Well, when the, in the Greek text, when the definite article is used as it is here, the thousand years, takilia, the thousand years, when the definite article is used, well, the Holy Spirit's not going to fool around about that. This isn't metaphorical. This is this is actually a thousand year period. So he is incarcerated and chained and sealed up and shut up in the abyss until the thousand years, the 1000 year period has been completed. After these things, it is necessary for him to be released for a little time. Now we're not told how long he's released other than at the close of the millennial kingdom, at the end of the thousand years, for some season of time, he is released. He's unbound. So this is it. And you have to understand and believe in it and know that here, all of, all of the fallen angels, the demons, they all are imprisoned as well. So for the thousand years, there is no tempter. Now, we could do a study sometime on the millennial kingdom because there's really quite a bit said about it, especially in the closing chapters of Isaiah. Um, and we happen to learn that even in a world where there is no tempter, and where the curse that has fallen on God's creation, the thorns, the thistles, and the animals tearing at one another and all that, when that's lifted, the Bible teaches that for that time, you know, that, that children play with poisonous snakes and the lion and the lamb, they lay down together and they play together. And all these dangerous animals are not dangerous anymore because the curse of fallenness, the curse of sin is lifted and Eden of the pre-fall world 
is, is restored and given to, to mankind. Now, at the, so even then, Isaiah teaches us that there are people who sin in the millennial kingdom. They are descendants. Now, I've been telling you, Matthew 25, the judgment of the nations and the goats, those who, the unsaved remnant left who weren't participants in Armageddon and who have not yet died, the earth dwellers, as I've called them, they are put to death. And so their souls descend to Hades. Those who are the sheep, most of them, Apparently, from the nation of Israel, all Israel will be saved. Some of them, many of them, from among the Gentiles, are invited by Christ, the King himself, to enter into the kingdom. So, however many there are, the Bible doesn't indicate, are there thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, are there millions? I don't know. However many there are, they enter into the kingdom in their mortal bodies and they have descendants for a thousand years. So people are born in the kingdom age, in the kingdom era during that time. Some of them sin and the sin comes from their own fallenness. Now understand, there's, there's still, without glorification, Without glorification, for those who are born during that time, there would still be a propensity to sin. When they sin, the Old Testament prophet says they are immediately put to death. It's the death penalty, just like that. Okay, so now, the millennial kingdom is about as perfect as you could imagine. Christ himself is the king of the world. King of the universe, King of kings, Lord of lords, eternal, blessed, holy, almighty son of God. He sits on the throne in, in Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom. Israel is the most favored nation. And apparently, according to what some of the Old Testament prophets say, the most populated nation in the world in that day. There are other nations, Gentile nations. The Bible teaches us that they bring their glory. They bring whatever production that their nations make. They bring their glory, whatever, whatever that might be, at their appointed times to Christ. And nation by nation at their appointed times are taught by Christ Himself. What, what, greater, what greater teacher of the word could you have than the one who is the word? So the parables of Christ have taught also that the saints, the glorified resurrected saints participate in the administration of affairs in the millennial kingdom. Now, I don't know, there would be so many of us, the Lord knows what to do. Maybe, maybe you're busy doing this for a while and then you get to go and do this for a while. 
whatever. But we'll have, we'll have wonderful work and service to do for our Lord. Now, this is the gospel according to Charles. You can take it or leave it. But remember, Christ said, you've done good. I'll make you, I'll give you authority over this many cities or this many. One guy had authority more than another did. So we have authority apparently in governance. Maybe every school teacher in the world is a glorified resurrected saint. And, you know, we can take little second graders and say, let me show y'all a trick. And we can disappear and reappear and walk through a wall and say, what do y'all think of that? Y'all just stick with me here in this class and y'all will do the same thing. If everything goes well like it ought to at the end of this whole period. So anyway, every, every animal is a pet. The present, obviously, it would have never been mentioned by Isaiah if it wasn't a thing of enjoyment to watch animals which otherwise would try to destroy each other and eat each other are out there frolicking and playing and would even play with people and children would happily reach into the hole of the nest of poisonous snakes and never bother them because that curse is lifted. It's not there anymore. Now, unbounded prosperity and happiness in the kingdom of our Lord for this thousand years, except for the occasional rebel here and there. But there's one thing that I'm sure if, if we serve as school teachers or whatever, administrators in some sort of governing sense under the Lord Christ, whatever, I'm sure that there will be one thing in the backs of our minds as we teach and lead the citizens of the millennial kingdom. And it is this. At some point near the end of this thousand years, the dragon is going to be released for a little while. And you need to understand the dragon. And you need to understand what he can do to you if you are not personally connected to the king of kings. I think that'll be a big part of our work to keep this prophecy in mind all the way through the thousand years. Now, and I saw thrones and they sat upon them. Judgment was given to them. Now we stop there. This, when you take what Daniel 12 says, this is the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. They did not participate in the war. They are resurrected after the time of Jacob's trouble. Now you have to extract from Zechariah to understand how the phrase Jacob's trouble is applicable to the time closely associated to the battle of Armageddon. Because the, the soldiers of the Antichrist invade the Holy Land, invade the Holy City, Jerusalem, and they're, they're 
ravaging and, and abusing and, and mis, mis, uh, misusing people. And of course, Christ returns and puts a stop to all of that. But all of the suffering that they go through right there at the end of it, this is, this is part of Jacob's trouble. And they were, a, they were a particular focal point of the wrath of the beast and of the dragon. When the time of Jacob's trouble is over, Christ resurrects the Old Testament saints. Now there's one group left. And this group hasn't been resurrected yet. That would be the tribulation saints. And here they are. And the souls of those having been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who did not worship the beast nor his image and did not take the mark upon the forehead and upon their hand, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So now right after the resurrection of the Old Testament saints, and right after the establishment of their rule and the thrones that belong to them, the tribulation saints are resurrected and they too reign with Christ. So now we're, we're all together in this thing. The rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years shall have been completed. This is the first resurrection. Once the tribulation saints, who are the last in the order of the first resurrection, you may, Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, every man will be raised in his own order. The, the, the Greek word means in his own troop, in his own rank, in his own order. And so there's an order to the first resurrection and it begins with Jesus Christ and his resurrection. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one having a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him the thousand years. So we reign with Christ. We are priests of God and of Christ so you begin to understand what our assignment will be in the thousand years. We will, we will be intercessors for the people. We will be priests to the people. And we will reign with Christ in administering over the people. So for that thousand years. Okay, so we're talking about the resurrection I did the best I could to get that as big as I could. I don't know if you can see it or not, but here is the order of the resurrection. There is a first resurrection where people are raised in their own order. And then there's the second resurrection. So I'm going to start with number one. The first, the first part of the first resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The second part of the first resurrection was shortly after Christ's resurrection when at the earthquake attending the crucifixion, graves were opened shortly after the resurrection of Christ and certain saints were raised and that's in Matthew 27. The third part of the first resurrection is the rapture of the church. The fourth part of the first resurrection is the resurrection of the two witnesses who had been killed and that's at the midpoint of the tribulation. 
The fifth part of the first resurrection are the Old Testament saints that we just read about. And they are resurrected right after the time of Jacob's trouble. Which that's immediately at the close and the war is won and all of Israel is saved. The sixth part of the first resurrection is at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. I don't know how much time passes between the resurrection of the Old Testament saints and the resurrection of the tribulation martyrs. I don't know. But it can't be too far apart. And so the tribulation martyrs are resurrected at the beginning of the millennial kingdom so that they can rule and reign with Christ. We just read that. Now, the second resurrection is the bad one. You're blessed and you're holy if you have part in the first resurrection. But that can't be said for anybody else. There's still a lot of people dead, haven't been resurrected, and that's the unbelieving dead. They are resurrected at the end of the millennial kingdom, at the end of the millennial reign of Christ. This resurrection, the second resurrection, will consist of all the unbelieving wicked dead. Evidence we presented, they will be found guilty and cast into the lake of fire. So, here we go. When the thousand years shall have been completed, Satan will be released out of his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. There are, well, okay. The curse of aging is, is, is gone. So a man and his wife can have children for a thousand years. Maybe twins and triplets, I don't know. But you can understand how quickly the world will populate in those thousand years. The world will be replete all around. The weather will be perfect everywhere. The soil to produce will be perfect everywhere. The administration and governance is directly under the hand of Christ, administered by the saints, glorified saints all over the world. Righteousness will rule and reign supreme. The earth will swell with a great population. But you see, as wonderful as that age is, these people who have been born have never faced temptation. So for just a little while, Satan is loosed and Why doesn't this guy ever learn a lesson? He goes right back to doing what he was doing when he was thrown in prison. He just, he's, okay. Satan is O and a thousand. I mean, he's never won. He has never won. But that doesn't seem to affect him because he is, He is the essence of evil and all that is bad. So he goes out and deceives Gog and Magog. Now we studied about Gog in the land of Magog. There's a little different reference here. 
Gog and Magog to gather them together unto the war of whom their number is like the sand of the sea. The Hebrew word Gog in Ezekiel 38 and 39, the Holy Spirit of God through the prophet Ezekiel is very careful to define Gog as a human leader in the land of Magog. And then he identifies other nations along with that nation. And everything is geographical in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Not so here. Now we go to the original language. There is the only thing that is said here that's a reference to anything with regard to geography is the nations in the four corners of the earth. So that's everywhere. And in Ezekiel 38 and 39, it was confined to a particular region. But here, Satan goes out all corners of the earth. The Hebrew word Gog means the top or the leader. Magog, Mim, is a Hebrew prefix that means from. So when you look at Magog, you're looking, see, there's, there's no, there's no, there are no, there are no vowels in the original Hebrew. It's only, it's only, um, it's, it's, it's only consonants. So Magog, the Mim, which is M, the, the Mim prefix means from. So you could say it like this. He goes out to deceive the nations from top to bottom. From a leader who can be found to all of those who follow the leader. Gog, Magog. That's what the Hebrew text means. And in that day, I don't believe that it references a, ge a geography, a geographical place because of the reference to the four corners of the earth. So we go to the language, the purity of the language. And the language tells us, if you remove the geographical distinctions from it, you have a leader at the top and those who follow the leader. So there's going to be some kind of leader, apparently. A human leader who will follow Satan for a little while. And he's able to whip people up into a frenzy. And they gather together to the war of whom their number is like the sand of the sea. Not a lot said about this other than as, as profoundly unbelievable as this is, there are a whole lot of people who follow this leader empowered by Satan. Now, it's not the beast, it's not the Antichrist. Maybe it's worse, I don't know, because the human condition will be so different and so near perfect. It won't be perfect, but it'll be so near perfect. So here are all the people who have been born and a great multitude of their number will participate and gather to the war against the Christ of God. The king of kings, from top to bottom, 
the leader and those who follow the leader, Gog and Magog, to the war and their number like the sand of the sea. Not much said about this. But I'm sure this is going to be a primary point of teaching for the resurrected saints in teaching and serving in the best way we can through administration. Those who are still in their mortal bodies and yet can live for a thousand or more years. So it's a point, I think, that will be an important point to those who serve Christ in the millennial kingdom. And they marched up over the breadth of the earth and encircled the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down out of heaven and devoured them. And that was it. And the devil, the one deceiving them, was cast into the lake of fire and sulfur. So Satan is entrant number three in the lake of fire. The beast and the false prophet were the first ones there a thousand years earlier. Number three cast into the lake of fire is the devil, the deceiver, where also are the beast and the false prophet and they will be tormented day and night to the ages of the ages. Look, I'm going to finish this thing, okay? I generally would stop here, but nobody's snoring yet, so I'm going to finish it. And I saw a great white throne. Now, this is at the end of the millennial kingdom. At the end of the last war. And the one sitting on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled, and no place was found for them. There's no way that's humanly possible to describe the particulars of this scene. Christ, God the Son, is sitting on a throne of, of judgment, the great white throne. Now let's look at this. Let's take this apart. Now from his face, the earth and the heaven fled. Here's what that means. The universe now at the final judgment, the universe is completely dissolved. There's no more earth. There's no more heaven. Why is there no more heaven? Except for the holy city, Satan rebelled in heaven. As wonderful as heaven is, there was sin in heaven. It was all gone. The stars, the moon, constellations, planets, all gone. Just like that. In Colossians chapter 1, the Bible says that Christ holds everything together or in his power, by his hand, everything consists. Synestomy, the Greek word means held together. 
So if you ever study physics, there's this unknown force that holds things together. That, that, makes, that makes the, the cosmos of, of atomic particles and, and subatomic particles what they are. Paul teaches to the Colossians that what holds everything together is the power of Christ. When he is pleased to do so, he will release his power from everything. And the universe will dissolve. Peter says that the elements will melt with fervent heat. The universe will dissolve in an unimaginable nuclear explosion. And it's all gone. So what realm are we standing in here? The great white throne is there. The new Jerusalem is there. And the lake of fire is there. About the only thing that I can say is, it is that place that is in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. Because in the Revelation 14, the lake of fire is mentioned where those who are not in the book of life are tormented forever in the lake of fire, which is before the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. So there is a realm that Christ upholds that of course stands even when the whole universe has disappeared and dissolved. It is such a powerful moment and time that before he calls the dead up from hell, from Hades, and that's, that's just death row, that's not the lake of fire. Before he calls them up from there, everything will dissolve. And we're going to see why here in just a second. No place was found for them. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the one of life. And the dead were judged out of the things having been written in the books according to their deeds. Now, here's, here's where it gets somewhat explanatory. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and, de and the death and the Hades gave up the dead who were in them. All right. When the material universe explodes and disappears and the fireball is collapsed. The great white throne is established and standing. The lake of fire ever to be in the presence of the holy angels and the lamb and the unsaved dead before the judgment bar of Christ, his saints, and his holy angels. So the time-space continuum here gives up all of the material elements, and the only thing that's left designated to exist at that moment beyond the white throne and the lake of fire are the unsaved dead.
the unbelieving dead. Because now there is no more death and there is no more Hades in the sense that there was death in the first heaven and first earth. Because death is about to be redefined. Nothing left except the multitudes and multitudes and multitudes of unbelieving dead. Screaming, probably cursing, yelling, crying, carrying on before the great white throne. They are outfitted in a corruptible body. They are outfitted in a body designed to die and decay endlessly, forever. A, a corruptible, nasty, decaying body covered in worms, maggots, constantly on fire, and totally blind, outer darkness, weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. The only thing they had to be brought up against them was the evidence written in those books. Now the Bible says those books were their works. If I didn't have Christ carrying my works to the cross, then I would have to bear those works myself. Those evil works will be judged. If they are not judged in Christ, in my behalf, when I have faith in him, and thus his righteousness covers me, then I will have to bear those works myself. How many times do you have to sin to be a sinner? How many times do you have to covet to break the Ten Commandments, to commit adultery, to put something ahead of God, to dishonor your father and your mother? How many times... Just once. The Bible is very clear. If you're guilty of one thing, you're guilty of it all. And without Christ, you stand alone and the evidence has piled up against you all of your life. And the book of evidence is opened. And without Christ, you're guilty. Guilty. Unsaved. Lost, only fitted for corruption forever, to die forever, to be in a state of death endlessly, to be gnawed upon by worms of decay forever and ever, to be crowned with and clothed upon with a flame of hell forever and ever. They were judged, each of them, according to their works. And the death and the Hades 
were cast into the lake of fire. So they were taken in their first death as unbelievers in Hades. And that place where they were retained and held now gets infinitely worse because the state that they are in and the place where they've been kept is cast into the lake of fire. The whole bunch of them. This is the second death. Death is now redefined. It's not like it was. This is the second death. The lake of fire. Now, let me uh, read uh, the text here. Verse 15, Kai, which is and, A, which is if or since. Now, I could go into this long explanation about the first clause and the identification, the second clause, the power, the one thing. Here's what it is. You would appropriately and properly translate this. Since anyone was not found having been written in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. It used to be an old song. Don't ever get your theology from songs. This old song, this old guy, you know, he's singing a song. Search the book again. Search the book again. Ain't gonna happen that way. Poof! Since there was not anyone whose name was found having been written in the book of life, he's cast in the lake of fire. Christ doesn't have to say, oh, well, well, okay, wait a minute, let me look at this again, make sure. Christ doesn't make a mistake. He doesn't overlook anything. That's it. Cast into the lake of fire, accommodated to torment those who are in it forever and ever, and they are always dying. Always dying. This is the second death. The lake of fire. I don't want to go there. So I hope you don't either. We'll stop there and we'll have it gets it's more pleasant and prettier after this. Okay, we'll have our deacon prayer time.